The title of this message is Divine Delays. Uh, I guess I have had experience that helps me identify with Jairus, sensing the urgency of time. The first one of those instances when, when my mother's leg was severed by a speeding uh, car and we were heading for the hospital and she was uh, bleeding profusely and, and I ran into the hospital to get some help to get my mother inside and I got that bureaucratic hospital look and they got from me the I'm coming over the counter look and things began to happen. But delays for me were things I found unacceptable at that point in time. After our son Timmy died, uh, we came to Dallas and we had uh, Beth, and she came became ill. And, and I remember in the morning we found her eyes rolling in the back of her head. And I got to tell you, I broke every speed limit there was in the city of Dallas and again, time was of the essence. I, I think I can identify with Jairus uh, in that. I want to put this in a little different setting just to start out, if I can, uh, because I somehow see this whole issue of 12 as some kind of a signal. I don't think it's accidental that the text purposes to say to us, the woman has been ill 12 years. The little girl is 12 years old. Maybe it's coincidence. I don't find many of those in the Bible. But <clears throat> think of it in terms of a hospital. And think about one room uh, where a baby is being born, the first and only child of a, of a happy father named Jairus. And down the hall is another hospital room where a doctor is diagnosing a woman who has come with some disturbing symptoms. And the doctor says to her, you have a serious hemorrhage, but given enough money and enough time, I'm sure we can make you better. Those two people now go the next 12 years on their own way, and somehow in our text, those two lives converge. And you see Jairus' daughter, not to mention uh, Jairus, and this woman with a hemorrhage coming together in such a way that God uses this circumstance to draw both of them to faith. The story revolves around four people. Jesus, of course, and Jairus, ruler in the synagogue, his 12-year-old daughter, and an unnamed woman with a hemorrhage. I think the story takes place in three uh, scenes. The first is a short scene, verses 21 through 24. That's the, the scene of the urgency of a desperate father who's coming to Jesus, pleading for him to come and to touch his daughter. It is interesting, is it not? Both Jairus and the woman think a touch is necessary to solve the problem that they are uh, dealing with. It's also interesting that there is no conversation in this between Jairus and Jesus. Jesus just goes with him. Second scene is the, the critical delay. You, you could call it an interruption, but the reality is the woman doesn't really interrupt. It's Jesus who interrupts. It could have gone on, wouldn't have been any hesitation in time. It's Jesus who calls the delay and creates, obviously, the crisis 
of the death of this young lady. And the third scene then is the, the dead daughter raised to life, much to the amazement and pleasure of her parents. So let's look first of all at the, uh, at the first scene, the plea of a desperate father. It must be significant that Jairus is introduced to us in our text as uh, the a ruler, or some would say the leader in the synagogue. We're not really quite clear exactly what, what the pecking order is here. And to my knowledge, we're not really clear about which synagogue or which city it may be in. But to be a synagogue leader is to be a person of influence, power, and whatever you... Uh, you can think about uh, a number of situations, but uh, the synagogue situation must have played into this in a kind of negative way. Now, look at uh, Mark chapter 1. Jesus goes to the synagogue, and there a demonized man cries out. Jesus casts out the demon, but the people make this conclusion. Here is a man who teaches with authority. In other words, Jesus doesn't only have the ability to teach, he has the ability to tell demons where to go, and they do. And so there's a a powerful introduction of Jesus, but it isn't long before we come to Mark chapter 2, and now the issues between Jesus and the religious system begin to come out. Uh, Does Jesus keep the Sabbath in the same way that they do? Does Jesus' uh, disciples fast like they or the disciples of John do? No. And so they are uneasy, but especially they are uneasy with a Jesus who can say to a man who is lowered through the roof, your sins are forgiven. That to them was the unpardonable theological sin. And so in chapter 3, in the first six verses, we have another synagogue scene. But in this scene, a man is placed there as a plant, a man with a withered hand, And the hope is that Jesus will heal him and therefore violate the Sabbath. And you remember when Jesus goes ahead and heals that man, the the text ends by saying to us that the religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus. Now all this is a way of saying that Jairus as a synagogue ruler is not only a powerful man, but it seems to me he is a man who is not predisposed to side up with Jesus. Wouldn't you say? Think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man who will ultimately come to faith in the Lord Jesus. But when, uh, when he, he comes to Jesus in John 3, he sneaks in by night. When he speaks in Jesus' defense in John chapter 7, are we giving Jesus due process? Do you remember his fellow religious leaders slap him down and say, are you as stupid as the crowds? Well, that'll kind of settle you down a bit. So I would suspect that Jairus was not eager to come to Jesus, but he is desperate enough that he does so. Uh... So there is that matter. By the way, I, I say in Luke chapter 8, I point attention, your attention to that. This is Jairus' only child, his only child, not only his beloved daughter, his only child. And, and that certainly probably was a factor in his desperation. Twelve years old at the point of death, nearly dead. Interestingly, as I point out from Matthew chapter 9, that text, very short though it is, 
In that text, he says, my daughter has just died. And you may wonder about that. Some may say, see, the Bible's full of all these inconsistencies and errors and whatever. Let me just say, number one, this is a report of what the father said. It's not a report of what's actually true. Follow me? That's the father's assessment. That's what he represents. Now, it may be that that's used as a figure of speech. We say, for instance, uh, let's put, put us back in seminary days. And, and here, for some reason, I stayed up all night doing something other than studying, and out comes a pop quiz. And I say to the guy next to me, I'm dead. You know, I, I mean, I really said that. But what I mean is not quite literally what I've said. So it may well be that what he is saying is she is virtually dead. And that really is true. He knows that girl has a certain amount of time and her life is slipping away. And here he is distant from her. He does not know. But what when he comes back, he will find her dead. So whatever the scenario is, the father certainly sees this as a crisis. And this is his assessment of her condition, not necessarily the reality of it. But it's clear that when it is, uh, it is actually concluded that she's dead, the mourners are called in, you know, all this stuff starts going on. None of that's happened. So we know from the other text, in spite of what the father may have said, she is just almost dead. The uh, Lord Jesus sets out with Jairus without any conversation, and uh, the crowd goes with him, which is not really a good thing in Jairus's mind. The crowd is just a.k.a. traffic jam. I mean, just think about it. You want to hurry through the streets. I don't know how far it is to Jairus' house, but by the time Jesus and Jairus get to the house with the crowds, the mourners are there, the funeral's going on. Time has had to pass for this thing to go on. Some distance, some time, crowds of people pressing upon Jesus don't speed up the process. So you can imagine Jairus looking around, looking at the traffic jam, and thinking, what do I do to hurry this thing up? That's when the critical delay comes in verses 25 through 34. Here is this nameless, helpless, hopeless powerless woman who has been under the care of doctors for 12 years. They have not helped other than to empty her bank account, uh, and indeed they have aggravated her circumstances to where she is in great uh, misery. Remember that because of the nature of her malady, a female malady, a hemorrhage, she would be ceremonially unclean. I take it, therefore, that she has not been to a synagogue. She has not been in the public uh, venue for worship or otherwise for 12 years. She is unclean, and that puts you at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of uh, your uh, acceptability within society. Now, in my opinion, and, and I maybe I'm... Uh, extending mercy that's that's sentimental rather than factual. 
In my opinion, the key to this woman's actions is that she feels unworthy of Jesus. See, here's Jairus. He's a big league religious leader. How does he come? Face to face with Jesus, right? Makes his petition and, and, and whatever. But that's not the way it works with her. She does not have the courage to face Jesus and make her request. She's unclean. She's powerless. She has nothing to offer, nothing to put in the, in the bag as a contribution. She, in her mind, does not dare to confront and ask Jesus directly for what uh, she wants. And consequently, I think the stealing, and, and I'm willing to call it that, the stealing of the healing is not based upon some malicious intent. It's based on the reality that she does not feel that if she approached him face to face that she is worthy of getting what she asks for. So what you see, of course, is these two very different people. Do you not? In a sense, uh, Jairus uh, seems worthy to, to ask. In fact, it's very interesting. When you go back to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, it's the story of the centurion who's concerned about his slave, remember, his servant. And, and the, the centurion says to Jesus, I did not feel worthy to come ask you. Who does? The religious leaders come. And you know why they come to, to Jesus? They say, by the way, to Jesus, literally, he is worthy. You know why? Because he built their synagogue. He's a donor. This is a big donor. And he is worthy. You need to listen. He says to Jesus, I'm not worthy. I was not worthy to approach you. And I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Now, if that centurion feels unworthy, then how do you think this woman feels in her state of uncleanness? Notice, too, that from the text, I understand that she has never seen Jesus before. It says, when she heard about Jesus, she believed he could heal her. So she hasn't even seen Jesus. It's not as though she's been back at the back of the crowd time after time and finally has this conviction he could really do it. She's heard about Jesus and she said, I believe Jesus can heal and so she steals the healing with a touch without asking. Interesting. It would have been, I think, a very easy opportunity for our Lord in the light of the crisis to let that healing pass, would it not? Not say a word, keep hurrying on to the house of Jairus. But he's the one who stops. She has not in any way delayed Jesus' progress. She slips up from behind, somehow gets a, a touch of the hem of his garment, and she's healed. So when you come to the actual healing, look at, look at what happens. It's immediately known both to her and to Jesus. Nobody else, nobody else knows. She knows and Jesus knows. Now, I'm inclined to, to, to read the text to say that as time went on over those 12 years, her suffering and her pain increased. I don't know how to read the text any other way. It reached the point where when she was healed, she physically felt 
the relief. She was well, and she knew it. But Jesus knew it too. He felt the healing power leave him. And you remember that text in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, which says, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, if I understand that text in Luke chapter 5, what that suggests to me is that there were times that power was not there. Not because he wasn't God, not because uh, of any inadequacy in him, but because Jesus operated in the power of the Spirit. He did nothing but what the Father gave him to do. So Jesus was not an independent agent, which is exactly what Satan was trying to get him to do, act on his own. So that when it says Jesus was unable to do many miracles, it was because Jesus sensed that the Spirit had not granted power to act in those cases. When he had the power, he recognized the, the lack of it, the flow of it. He knew power had left him, and therefore he stops to uh, search this matter out. So Jesus takes a time out. The woman hasn't interrupted but Jesus comes to a halt uh, in spite of the urgency of the situation. The crowds were there. They had been slowing him down. And in fact, the crowds were pressing in on him, <laughs> which is what made the disciples look at Jesus like he had somehow was a few bricks short of a load. You know, here's Jesus saying, who touched me? Who touched me? I mean, everybody and their brother-in-law is touching him. They're pressing in. And notice now, when he says, touched me, I said, touched me. He didn't say that. He said, who touched my garments? There's a difference. It's one thing for me to go up and grab Ken by the arm. It's another thing for me to slip up behind him and touch the tail of his shirt. There's no physical sensation in that. Jesus is saying, and by the way, the woman said, I will be healed if I touch his garments. She didn't even have the boldness to latch on. She had the courage and the faith to touch his garment. So when Jesus said, who touched me, it was because of the power that left him, not because of some physical sensation of, of, of touch that had come upon her. So here are the disciples. They cannot believe what Jesus is saying. I mean, they're saying, Jesus, we're in a hurry. I don't know what Jairus is saying, but he's got to be frothing at the mouth. Does he not? His daughter's life is on the line. She is at the brink of death. And here's Jesus quibbling about somebody touching him. It's insane. And the disciples are always there to tell Jesus such things. I bet it was Peter who said it, but I can't put money on it. So here she comes. Jesus demands that the person come forward. She comes forward and falls at his feet. I want to stop and say, they all do. In Mark, they all do. Legion falls at his feet. Jairus falls at his feet. This woman falls at his feet because that's the place you ought to be. But anyway, so she comes, falls before Jesus, and she tells everyone what Jesus has done. Interesting, the Jesus who says, don't make this public 
is now the Jesus who stops and requires her to go public about what she has done and what he has done. And it wasn't because he needed the PR, folks. It wasn't because of that. It was because this woman needed to acknowledge what Jesus had done. And had she left, just think about this, if she had left with a stolen healing, how would that have felt as the years went on? She wouldn't have gone away in peace. That's what Jesus gives her by this delay. Go in peace and be healed. She already was healed. Jesus is working on the peace part of it. For her sake, not for his. So Jesus sends her away. I say saved. The word that is used, healed, is the word that is the word most often used for the word saved. So it's used sometimes for deliverance from demons, sometimes for deliverance from sickness, and in the greatest sense, deliverance from the consequence of sin and therefore being eternally saved. And notice that Jesus puts the emphasis on faith. How easy it would have been to say, wow, you know, people say, how did you touch him? Well, it was kind of this move that I have here. You know, you do this and you could write books on how to get a touch, whatever. Baloney. It's faith. And Jesus says, you go in peace. Your faith has saved you. That's a critical piece. And, and I'm going to push that word and in verse 34. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Something more than a physical healing is taking place. And that takes us to our next uh, section. A greater meal, a miracle is being performed. Jesus is still speaking to the woman when some representatives from the synagogue ruler's house come with the bad news. The bad news is she's dead. Too late. And the bad advice, don't bother the teacher anymore. Interesting, number one, that a grieving father would be viewed as a bother to Jesus. That doesn't set well with me. But what's even worse is Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. He's merely the teacher. You see what they're saying? Jesus is now out of his depth. This is now in a category beyond his ability. Jesus were a mortician, maybe you'd call him. But he's a teacher. What can he do? Don't bother Jesus anymore. That that sounds to me like a pretty demeaning estimation of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' response is not to respond (laughs) to the jerks. He ignores the bad counsel. That doesn't affect him at all. He goes on. But what he does do is focus on Jairus. And he says to Jairus, don't fear, I like the New American Standard here, any longer. The sense of that command is stop it. Stop letting fear get hold of you. But believe So his concern with Jairus is Jairus' faith. 
just like his concern with the woman was to put the emphasis on faith. So here they come to this chaotic scene. They arrive at the house. And I don't think most of us have seen funerals that are anything like what a funeral would be in that part of the world. I mean, you've got paid mourners, you've got wailing and crying. I did a funeral one time uh, for for a woman who was a part of, a, of an ethnic group where they did that. And I have to tell you, it was the darkest, most depressing service I, I have ever been in, wailing and, and, and just, just horrible stuff. And, and virtually... Uh, no one there, save a couple of people from this church, were believers. It was just a terrible scene. That's the scene that Jesus comes on, this chaotic morning that has already taken place. And Jesus makes this radical declaration. She is not dead. She's asleep. Now, I know our minds are racing ahead. And, and I say ahead because that's where it is. It's a week before Jesus enters Jerusalem in John 11. And Jesus says that to his disciples. This is the first raising from the dead in the Gospel of Mark. Nobody has this one on their radar. Nobody's poking each other in the ribs saying, what's this? This is going to be good. You thought it was something to still a storm or to deal with a demonized man who's got 2,000 demons? This is going to be good. Nobody saw this coming. And so Jesus' words were an incredible thing. Now, when some translations say they laughed at him, I, I don't, somehow that doesn't quite carry it with me. I think it's more absolute ridicule and scorn. They really pour on the negativity toward Jesus for, for saying this. It is not, uh, let's just say, the atmosphere of faith. So Jesus clears the place, sends all the mourners out. Now, it, 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 I may be wrong, but my perception is Jairus's house was probably a fairly large house. If it's typical, from what I understand of, of these services, the body would now be laid out and in a room, and people would file into the house, file by the body, and then they would you know, go through whatever ritual they did while all the mourners are carrying on, and then they would leave. So when Jesus gets there, he clears the house of, of all these scorners, takes only his, his three disciples and the parents in with him. Now, I, I, there, there may be all kinds of reasons for this. I can understand why the crowds are not there. My sense is that Jesus is gently and compassionately looking from the child's point of view. Now, we've got a, a little grandchild. I wish we could raise him up right now, my one-year-old grandchild, Isaac. But... You know, even even Isaac, when he sees a stranger, you know, when a stranger holds out their hands, you know, the natural tendency of that child is to say, I don't know you. <laughs> you got to be kidding. Can you imagine a 12-year-old girl who's been desperately ill waking up to a scene, for instance, of all these guys carrying on? You know, that wouldn't go. Or even to these 12 strange-looking people, 13 with Jesus, all these strangers around, I think what Jesus is doing is gently ministering to that girl from her context 
And in a sense, for her ease, every text says he gently touches her and says, in effect, in effect, it's time to wake up, little girl. It's time to wake up. What more gentle way could you speak to a child to come out of a state of death and now you've got four strangers, but mom and dad nearby, and the gentle touch of Jesus. This is not the time for loud noise, for big fanfares. Remember like Naaman thought that Elisha ought to do, he ought to wave his hands and go through all this rigmarole to take away his leprosy. He just speaks a word, touches her gently, because that's the virtue and and the nature of his power. So life is restored to the girl. Her parents are amazed and astonished. And Jesus makes two fascinating commands. One, don't tell anyone. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You're saying to yourself, oh, good grief. You think all those crowds went home when Jesus sent them out the door? No, they're waiting for Jesus to come out that door a failure. They'll show him scorn. They're standing by. They know that child is dead. They've seen the body. They know what that situation is. Everybody knows. And and the text goes on to say, everybody's amazed. Everybody hears about this. It isn't something that stays silent. So why does Jesus tell the parents not to tell anybody? Here's my take. He says, oh, they'll know she's alive. Don't tell them anything more. People are snoops, are they not? People are snoopy. They want all the details, right? They just Boy, you just got to hear the whole thing. How did he do it? What went on in there? These are people who have scorned Jesus, and Jesus is saying they don't need any more than what they see. Don't tell them. Don't give them the details. That's the way I read the text. Because it's obvious he's not keeping the raising from them. The second is... Give her a little food. Here's this little girl. She's getting up and she's walking around. And, and I can remember some of my girls when they were young and, and they would hang on to my, the pant leg and they'd just walk around my legs talking, you know, all the way. And I don't know what this little girl is doing, but she's walking around the room. But she's been sick. And Jesus says she really needs nourishment and strength. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't do for them what they can do for themselves? Hey, mother can fix food. They can feed the child. Jesus doesn't fill her stomach miraculously. He gives her life miraculously and says, you feed her. Because Jesus is in the business of doing what nobody else can do. All right, so let's talk about some concluding things. In my mind, this text is not about primarily not about physical healing not primarily about physical healing it's about salvation our lord healed many but his concern was for the spiritual well-being of people notice in chapter 5 verse 34 he uh, says to the woman your faith has saved you i know the words healed the greek word is saved and, and while that's used broadly, I think that narrowing it down to only healing is not right. And by the way, Matthew presents this thing 
out of the order that Luke and Mark do, Mark and Luke present it after the, the parable section. But in, in, uh, in, in our text, did I say that right? Mark chapter, yes. Chapter 4 in Mark, Luke chapter 8, yes. So it's after the parable section. In Matthew, it's before the parable section. And interestingly enough, the chapter begins with Jesus saying to the man, your sins are forgiven. And my point in this is, he's, in Matthew's way of laying it out, Jesus is more concerned about the forgiveness of sins than he is about the fixing of bodies. So I believe when Jesus calls attention to faith, it's the faith by which they trust in him and are saved. And then he says to Jairus, don't fear, but believe. Jesus is leading them down the path of faith. The focus, in my opinion, is not so much on Jairus' daughter as it is on Jairus. Could be wrong, but, you know, she really gets very little space when you stop and think about it. It's Jairus that is the focus, and I'll try and explain to you why. I think that's true in a minute. And then I've already told you the word sozo is the word for saved as well as the word translated here, healed. Now, one of the things I see in this story is the intricate way in which God has taken these two people who have this 12-year bond somehow between them. He intertwines their stories so that each are instrumental in the life of the other, moving them down the path of, of faith. You've got two very different people when you think about it. You know, here's a man and a woman. Here's a guy at the top of the heap, socially and, and probably economically. Here's a woman at the bottom of the heap. Here's a religious leader. Here's a woman who the law pronounces unclean. Can't get much farther than that. So it seems. The interesting thing is what they have in common. Try this on for size. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. All our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. If you think I'm exaggerating, go to your lexicons and look up the word. The word is the word that describes the, the, the implement of clothing that that woman must wear because of her malady. It's that kind of rag. Isn't it interesting that she has her literal rags? He, with all of his righteous deeds apart from Christ, is in the same boat she is. Both the up and outer and the down and outer have filthy rags before God. They're both equally lost. That's what I see. They share that in common. They share desperation. What do you think prompted Jairus who surely from his position is not naturally predisposed to go to this who-knows-who rabbi and cast yourself down before him to beg for a healing. Why would he do that, especially when his own colleagues and religious peers have already determined to kill Jesus? There's only one reason, because Jesus is that man's only hope. For his daughter. He has no ace up his sleeve. He has no plan B. Jesus is it. And he is a desperate man. If it isn't Jesus, it isn't anything. 
By the way, interesting too, isn't it? This is not the time for doctors. Where is that? Oh, good. Okay, our doctor friend isn't here this morning. I don't see him. All right, this is not the time for doctors. In other words, the, the doctors had not done her any good. They had only done her harm, right? Jairus didn't call the doctor, folks, because the doctor couldn't save his daughter. In some ways, I like to think about the doctors as the religious system. You can go to religion all you want, and boy, you'll pay. <laughs> but it won't help. Only Jesus is the one that will help. So both of them share in the, in the end. They share a faith in Jesus. These two, in my opinion, that whose destinies are most intertwined, are the two most unlikely people to be saved from a human point of view. Jairus is most unlikely because he thinks too highly of himself. His position, his power, his religious activities, all of that. I know I'm presupposing some, but that's, that's basically, if Jesus says it's so hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom, then surely a, a, a religious man who has all of this baggage would seem to put himself in that, that spot too. The woman's too low. She can't even go to church for 12 years. She's unclean. She's broke. She has nothing to offer Jesus. Shouldn't even be in the crowd. So these two people, their destinies are brought together and both move down the path of faith. Desperation is God's means of drawing men to himself. Isn't that interesting? Desperation is what brings people to himself. I was thinking about Paul, or shall we say Saul, uh, in Acts 9 terms, in this regard. Here's a guy who seems to have all these religious works and whatever, and he says in Philippians 3 that he counts all that but dung. But Jesus did an interesting thing. Not only did he confront him on the road and scare the living daylights out of him, he blinded him for three days. Paul was a pretty desperate man, and he came through the work of the Spirit to trust in the Lord Jesus. This is true for Jairus. It's true for the woman. When you think about it, when uh, uh, Jesus speaks in, in Acts or, or in uh, John chapter uh, six, 14, 7 through 11, he says, The Spirit will come and convict men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Hey, folks, that's telling people they're desperate. Isn't that right? If you understand your condition before God, you ought to be desperate. You're a sinner. Jesus Christ is righteous, and we're going to stand judgment. Yikes! That's desperate. And the gospel is for desperate people. One of the things I love about this text is Jesus actually brings people to the point of desperation where they have nothing to offer. And the temptation for people in that spot is to say, why would God waste his time with me? I, you know, I, I, my past is so bad. My history is so bad. I, I don't have any standing with God. You don't. Neither does Jairus. But when he brings you to that place, that is the place he wants you. Because God doesn't want people who help themselves. God wants people who are helpless and cling only to him by faith so that it's his power and his glory that are the result and the evidence that's gone, uh, that goes out. 
Well, I threw in a 4th of July deal. All right, there you get it. You're waiting for a 4th of July thing. You want to talk about freedom, folks? Here's freedom. Here's freedom. Freedom that Jairus has from a religious system that can't save, but Jesus can. Freedom from the jaws of death. Freedom from an incurable malady. Freedom from sin. That's what Jesus came for. Now, that brings us to look at divine delays and to say, maybe we need to have a new way of thinking about delays. Have you ever thought about divine delays in the Bible? I mean, you think about God. He says to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a mighty nation. 25 years later, or 24 years later, Abraham's saying, it's getting late, Lord. There isn't much left in the tank. In fact, there isn't any tank at all. Where am I going to get a child? God delayed so that he built faith into Abraham. He delayed so it was evident that it wasn't Abraham's cunning or or Sarah's, but it was God's power that produced the child. You, You have all kinds of delays. The one in John 11 is so apparent. Jesus' purposeful delay in going to be in Bethany where Lazarus was desperately ill because it was for the glory of God. Our Lord works in delays, and so I'd like to suggest to you that that may be a challenge to us about how we pray. It's often through the greatest desperation that people come to cling to Christ by faith. Why is it that we often pray And we may not say it exactly in these words, but we mean it. Dear Lord, please solve this problem quickly. Quickly. That being interpreted means don't let me suffer any longer. Get me out of this hot spot. Act now and make my life easy. When the reality is much of what our Lord does is by way of delay. I mean, look at what he's done in terms of delaying his second coming. And I know Psalms has a lot of how longs, O Lord, because God works through delays. Often we're trying to pray delays away. God works through human suffering and agony. And oftentimes our prayers are asking God to take it away. And I'm saying to you, my friend, maybe it's our prayers that need to change. Because it may well be that it's delay and difficulty suffering, if you would, that God is going to use to achieve his purposes. And that, my friend, is what it's about. So the safest prayer in the world is, thy will be done. He can do anything he wants and any time frame he wants, but he often delays. One last word about evangelism. If it is desperate people... If it is people's desperation that predisposes them, sort of pretenderizes them, so that he can then draw them to faith, who are the people that we seek? Who are the people that we give our lives to? Who are the people that we reach out to? Man, I'll tell you, it's sure fun to do country club evangelism. You know, ski slope evangelism. (laughs) Beaches of Hawaii evangelism. Pass out tracks there while you're riding the surf. Now, I'm not saying those people shouldn't have the gospel. Don't misunderstand me. 
I'm simply saying, who did our Lord Jesus go to? And who went to him but the desperate people who had no hope? They're not pretty people. And I bet you if you stuck around whatever her name was, they don't smell too sweet either. But the reality is Jesus cared about her as he cares about you. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. What a gentle, gentle Savior he is in the way he dealt with this woman, even in the way he dealt with Jairus and the way he dealt with that daughter who had died. And yet how powerful he is. He is not only the one who can still the storm, not only the one who can take on a host of demons, he is the one who can cure sickness and raise the dead. Our hope is in him. May he be our glory and our joy. If there's anyone here this morning apart from faith in him, May you show them how desperately lost they are. And may they turn in faith to the Lord Jesus, who is their only hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.